Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, it's Thursday, June 10th, and ASCO 2021 is wrapped up. So I'm uh, going to go through the highlights here. I've got 10 studies to talk about. These aren't necessarily the top 10, just 10 that I kind of thought were, were interesting and worth Worth discussing. Uh, nothing, um, no investigational agents. Uh, I'll talk about those uh, if and when they are approved. Uh, and not talking about like, oh, the trend, you know, less is more or anything like that, or more isn't always better. We're just going to talk about, you know, what I want to talk about. So the first thing I want to talk about, in my opinion, it's the best study at ASCO. It's the Outback study. And it's just a coincidence that I drive uh, an Outback. Um, this is looking at adjuvant chemotherapy in cervical cancer, uh, locally advanced cervical cancer, uh, following cis, uh, cisplatin-based chemoradiation. All right. So cisplatin-based radiation, you know, the 40 milligrams per meter squared weekly with, with radiation has been the standard of care for years for cervical cancer. Uh, and this study asked the right question which is can we improve five-year overall survival or cure by adding something additional? In this case, it's four cycles of carboplatin paclitaxel after uh, the chemo radiation, all right? So the five-year overall survival was 71% versus 72%, and the Kaplan-Meier curves perfectly overlap. There's absolutely no benefit for more chemo after chemo-based radiation. So why is this the best study? It's a negative study, but it was adequately powered to, to answer the right clinically relevant question. It wasn't a, a study designed to ask a question that is going to make a drug look good no matter what, right? They didn't spin their alpha on X, Y, and Z, this, that, and the other. They're just looking at overall survival. And now we know. It's a negative study that, that answered a question. Now we know. Cisplatin-based radiation it remains the standard of care. We don't need anything more than that. Uh, and uh, if you've worked in oncology long enough, you know that there's always uh, the allure of doing something additional in hopes of improving patient care. And a lot of times people do that based on theory until we have data showing it's not. Uh, in this case, we know. All we need now is the cisplatin and the radiation. Uh, still, you know, 7 out of 10 are cured. Uh, so, you know, 3 out of 10 are not. And, and recurrent metastatic cervical cancer is a painful thing. It's a painful, painful thing. Okay. The next study is in Power 110. This is in uh, stage 1B to 3A non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and this was about 1,200 patients with uh, resectable non-small cell lung cancer. It got four cycles of cisplatin-based chemo. And then they were randomized to a tizilizumab for a year or best supportive care. Now, so it's adjuvant. So we're going to see a recurring these folks. So the primary endpoint is disease-free survival. That's cool. Not. All right. Uh, they included people uh, with 1B to 3A disease, um, and uh, there was, uh, you know, they, they changed uh, what they wanted to talk about because that hazard ratio was 0.81. Okay, confidence interval, the cap and curve separate, and they come back together. So when they look at only patients with stage 2 to 3A and a PDL1 uh, tumor score, uh, tumor cells of 1% or more, we do see a significant improvement in disease-free survival. Hazard ratio of 0.66, uh, p-value 0.004. That comfortable goes from 0.5 to 0.88. The Kaplan-Meier curves separate at three months. They're the widest at two years, and they tighten a little bit at three years, right? And this is only a median follow-up of 33 months, so you maybe shouldn't take a whole lot by that tight at three years. But what's going to happen to these people who are not cured? Uh, their disease comes back, and they're going to be treated with with immunotherapy, with a checkpoint inhibitor then. Um, and so our two-year disease-free survival rate is 75 versus 61%. 
that drops to 60 versus 48%. So you can see the tightening there. If you do the math, you go from a delta of about, uh, well, 14.6 to a delta of 11.8. Uh, um, so things do tighten. Um, and this is why they didn't put all their alpha in overall survival because they were looking at a large population and they look, they, they realized if we only assess our alpha or only, and when I say spend the alpha, you get like 5%, right? You got $5 to spend on your, on your, uh, your primary analysis, right? If you spend it all in overall survival and it fails, you don't have anything else to promote or tout. If you spend $1 here on your overall population, you've got $4 to spend on the PDL1 positive population. Or you can split that any number of ways with hierarchical testing. And I'm not a biostatistician, uh, but this is why they spend their alpha because they didn't see a, a, a statistically significant benefit in the whole population, only in the stage two and stage three A uh, who uh, who were PDL1 positive. Now it's maybe not surprising if you go back and listen to the uh, the landmark. Uh, Oncofarm pod I did on JBR10, most of the benefit of adjuvant chemo is in those stage 3A patients, very little in 1B and, and, and not much in 2. It's mostly the 3A folks who, who are benefiting here. Uh, and so this is this is the right question, is is adjuvant immunotherapy after standard of care surgery and cisplatin-based chemo, does it improve overall survival? That's where they fall short of asking uh, the best question. So because, you know, they already have their significant p-value, they're, they're they don't necessarily have an incentive. People are going to start doing this. They don't have a decision to see if this actually cures folks uh, more. Uh, and we'll have to wait for longer follow-up to see if that's the case. Um, and, you know, if five years down the road, if the people who relapse do just as well in the long run getting uh, chemo and immunotherapy or just immunotherapy as those who didn't get adjuvant atezolizumab. All right, the next study staying in, in lung cancer is the Pacific study, five-year follow-up. So this was the, a landmark study of dervalumab consolidation following chemoradiation for stage 3A non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, it showed continued overall survival benefit. The five-year OS uh, was 42.9% in dervalumab versus 33.4 months. That's a delta of almost 10 or 9, so a, a pretty good number to treat of just over 10. Uh, I think what's really interesting from from these from these data when you look at the Kaffmeyer curves, and you look at the progression-free survival, uh, the four-year PFS is 35% versus 19.9%. Hey, 35 versus 20. All right, the five-year PFS is 33 versus 19. So we're seeing a, a plateau. Like there, from year four to year five, there aren't a whole lot more people who are progressing or dying. Um, now, in the Pacific study, most of the folks after chemoradiation had a partial response, not complete response. So I'm not sure if these folks are disease-free. It's progression-free survival, not disease-free survival. So I don't know if we're curing some of these folks or if they're just having, uh, like we've seen with checkpoint inhibitors uh, with lung cancer, just long-term benefit from the drug. Because a third of these folks, after a year devalumab, have not, re have not progressed or died, meaning they're not even needing any other uh, treatment. So there's definitely clinical benefit here, uh, and we see that confirmed five years later, which is great to see that long-term follow-up. Uh, sticking in the lung cancer space and long-term follow-up, we have J. Alex, which was originally published in Lancet in 2017. So this is ALK-positive uh, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer in Japan, comparing crizotinib, the first ALK inhibitor, to electinib, uh, what we think of as one of the better uh, ALK inhibitors. So the original publication now four years ago strongly favored uh, electinib in PFS. Now the overall survival that we see here uh, is is overlapping. There, there's no difference. The hazard ratio for overall survival is 1.03. The cat microbes are pretty much superimposable. Uh, 
Um, so why would you see such a large PFS benefit originally with electinib, but no overall survival benefit? It's because about 80% of the people randomized to crizotinib crossed over to electinib on disease progression. Um, you know, so it, it doesn't matter in this population uh, with the treatments they have in Japan and the standard of care there, whether you get crizotinib or electinib, your odds of being alive five years later are the same regardless. Um, and so I would kind of go with whichever one would be cheaper or, or better tolerated. You know, crizotinib can cause some testosterone lowering in men, so maybe I would favor the electinib if I were a patient. Um, I'll also point out the median overall survival not reached in, in either arm. You know, alpha-positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer does fairly well, uh, and this is at a median follow-up of, of more than five years, and the median OS has not been reached, so, you know, the overall survival is well above 50% at five years for these folks. Uh, so, I, you know, the takeaway thing is just because you have an, an impressive PFS benefit at our study of adjuvant ocimertinib, that doesn't guarantee you'll have OC, uh, your overall survival benefit uh, when you have really highly effective second-line option and uptake of that second-line option, whether it be a second-generation TKI or an immune checkpoint inhibitor after disease progression, say after stage, stage 3A uh, lung cancer. Okay, something that came up in clinic this morning is the results from Elevate RR. I think that's the name of the study. This is a calibrutinib versus a brutinib in relapsed refractory CLL. Uh, I think the, the early results of this had been reported earlier. I'm sure they were because this is a median follow-up of 41 months. 500 patients. Um, from an efficacy standpoint, the median progression-free survival was 38 months in both arms. It doesn't seem to be that maybe one's better than the other, although... Um, the median overall survival had not been reached in either arm, but there seemed to be a trend in favor of a calibrutinib. But I think the, the takeaway point here is that there was significantly less cardiovascular toxicity in the acalabrutinib arm compared to a brutinib, which is not surprising. That's what we would have predicted and would have guessed just from looking at the package insert data from the registry trials for these agents. Acalabrutinib being a little bit more um, uh, potent uh, at BTK and hopefully less off-target toxicity. So the AFib rate was 9.4% with a calibrutinib versus 16% with a brutinib. Uh, hypertension, 9.4%, exactly the same number, interestingly, with a calibrutinib versus 23.2% with a brutinib. And again, these are going to be older folks. So these cardiovascular comorbidities are going to be prevalent and worsening of those are, are certainly something of, of, uh, of clinical relevance. Uh, fewer arthralgias, less diarrhea with a calibrutinib, more headache and more cough, interestingly enough. Uh, so at least for, say, that uh, little old lady in clinic who has a significant cardiovascular history, initial treatment with a calibrutinib makes more sense than a brutinib. Now, this is the relapsed refractory setting for CLL. So you're probably not going to see very many new CLL patients who are not going to get a BTK inhibitor up front. And I do think it's, it's very reasonable to extrapolate safety data from the second line setting to the first line setting for CLL. All right. <laughs> uh, sorry, leukemia folks. Only leukemia study we're talking about. All right, let's 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 move on down the GI tract and talk about Keynote 177. This was a plenary session last year. One of the big papers last year was Pembro versus Chemo for metastatic colon cancer that was um, uh, microsatellite high or mismatch repair deficient. And what we're looking at here, so there's a huge PFS curve, huge PFS benefit, um, last year. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The, the hazard ratio for PFS was 0.6. All right. Now, those kept microbes crossed at six months. So in the first six months, patients were more likely to die or progress on the Pembro arm than the Fulfox arm. But they separated widely, very widely, 
after those six months. So this is the three-year overall survival benefit. The p-value is 0.0359, but it's not statistically significant because of their alpha spending and, and things like that and, and what their primary outcome was. The hazard ratio for death is 0.74, favoring Pembro. Uh, 0.53 to 1.03 is uh, the... Um, uh, the comp 95% confidence interval. Now, the same thing happens. These overall survival curves looked across six months. The three-year OS is 61% versus 50%. It's a delta of 11%. I did that math in my head. That seems really, really, that seems big, okay? And this is a scenario where, you know, the purists will say there's never such a thing as a result that's statistically significant, but clinically significant, right? If you don't show statistical significance, you can't really say anything from it. It's hard for me to look at that and, and not think that this benefit is going to hold up if you had more patients and a, and a higher power. And part of the reason for that is hazard ratio is, you know, using the log rank test to, to, to find a hazard ratio has a huge flaw if the Kaplan-Meier curves cross. It's kind of looking at the area under the curve of both these curves, and if they cross, you know, it, it, it's gonna it's gonna be different now. If they had had a key secondary endpoint of three year overall survival, I I gotta think it would be statistically significant. Sixty one percent versus fifty percent with this many patients, um, it's pretty good. You know, I, I think it's there. The one thing I'll say though is the PFS curves separate very widely and stay separated. The overall survival curves do not separate as widely. So what what is happening here is these folks who got up full fox when they progress. They're going on to second line immune checkpoint inhibitor, and that's quote making up some of that ground in overall survival. So, I think that Pembro for this population initially is still going to be the standard of care. Although some patients progress very fast on immune checkpoint inhibitor, so you know I'd like to see a study uh, of a limited trial of chemo plus immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, right away for these folks. Um, you know, so this was a negative study. If you know. If their sole endpoint, uh, you know, had not been uh, overall survival, had been overall survival, uh, then then maybe they would have um, they would have found the overall survival benefit. Okay, uh, let's go uh, back up uh, the GI tract to uh, the esophagus, the squamous cell uh, carcinoma of the esophagus. This is checkmate six forty eight. Three arms here, all right? Three arms, first-line treatment for metastatic squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus. Remember, the top part of the esophagus more likely to be squamous cell, the lower part, adeno. Um, so three arms, uh, one just chemo by itself, all right? Uh, cisplatin plus 5-FU. The other is nivolumab plus the same chemo regimen, and then nevo plus ipi, so a chemo-free regimen for metastatic uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the, the food pipe. Uh, so here are... Our, our primary endpoint here uh, was split between overall survival and progression-free survival in the PDL1 population, but they included everybody. Like, if your primary endpoint is just the PDL1 population, why do you accrue other people? Uh, they're, they're spreading their alpha around, um, trying to, to find something beneficial. So, uh, the 15, sorry, the, the median overall survival uh, for chemo plus Nevo, and the Nevo dose here was 240 milligrams every two weeks. Fixed dosing was 15.4 months. That did have uh, a hazard ratio of 0.54 that was significant compared to chemo alone. Nevo plus Ipi was 13.7. So not as good as Nevo plus Cisplatin and 5-FU, but still better than chemo alone, which was nine months. Both those values are significant only for the PDL1 positive population of 1% of or more PDL1 expression. Now, when they do 
because those were significant, they can go down their hierarchical testing and then test the same thing in the entire population, which is uh, like 320 patients in arm, whereas the PDL1 positive was just 150 in arm. I'm just going to give you the, the, the numbers real quick, same order Neva plus chemo, Neva plus IPI, chemo alone, and this is uh, median overall survival. 13.2, 12.8, 10.7. Now, it's kind of hard to hear these numbers, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through them again. I'll do the PD-L1 population first. Nevo plus chemo, 15.4 months. Nevo plus chemo for all patients, 13.2. Nevo plus IPI in the PD-L1 positive uh, was 13.7 months, and everybody, 12.8. Chemo alone, so the, the, the take-home kind of point there so far is the overall star was higher in the PDL1 positive group, if you got an immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, compared to when you dilute that population or when you uh, when you add the PDL1 negative there, then the chemo alone, the median OS was nine months. It's actually 10.7 in those who were PDL1 negative and positive. You analyze both together, so like half the people in the study are PDL1 positive, half are negative. The hazard ratios are much better in the PDL1 positive population. And I think if you only analyze the PDL1 negative, you would not find any benefit to immune checkpoint ever. Now we don't know that, but this is why, you know, they're they're first they look at PDL1 positive. When that's positive, they're like, let's look at everybody together. Uh, so you're kind of double counting here your PDL1 positive folks in the specific population just with PDL1 expression and the overall population. So if I had to guess that you know the PDL1 positive folks are the only ones benefiting here from immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, this is, I think, one additional useful thing here in the study is that the Nevo plus IPI uh, was better than chemo alone, um, and, and that's going to be potentially useful for patients who are not candidates for chemotherapy, right? Especially a cisplatin-based regimen. Now, if they weren't candidates for cisplatin 5U, they weren't going to be on the study, so we really don't have data on, on Nevo plus IPI in, say, an ECOG-2 person, all right? All right, this was a really interesting study called the F uh, FOHAIC, F-O-H-A-I-C, which is the, the uh, folic acid or folinic, uh, sorry, 5-FU oxaliplatin hepatic artery infusion of chemo one study. These were unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma patients that were child PUA or child PUB if that was just barely C. If they, the child PU score was seven, that's the very healthiest child PUB folks for, for uh for liver cancer. This was 260 patients randomized to the hepatic artery infusion of basically Folfox or serafinib. Now, serafinib is not the standard of care anymore for metastatic HCC. It's a tizolizumab plus BEV, all right, if it's child PUA patients anyway. Pretty impressive median overall survival benefit, 13.9 versus 8.2 months. That's a, that's, that's, that's big. <laughs> it's a hazard ratio of 0.4. Anytime a hazard ratio it is below 0.5 and you're talking more than 50% improvement and the risk of, of death, that's pretty good. And that the 95% confidence was 0.3 to 0.5. So pretty small, especially for just 260 patients. So this is like eyes emoji when you see this. Now the hepatic artery infusion strikes me as something that has, it's pretty specialized and not easy to do. So when this is published, how they did this in great detail will be very important if this becomes standard of care and gets rolled out. Uh, I think a lot about, um, uh, intraperitoneal chemotherapy for ovarian cancer uh, has far and away the best data, very impressive data, but is not caught on everywhere in the country because of the challenges of administration. All right, and then uh, two more studies to talk about. Olympia is adjuvant olaparib for a year or placebo in high-risk breast cancer patients that have a germline BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation following um, 
following chemotherapy with either a taxane, uh, with a taxane uh, and or an anthracycline. So they looked at uh, both people who were triple negative uh, and hormone positive folks. Now the high risk meant that if you were triple negative breast cancer, you had to be uh, node positive or uh, a T2 lesion if you got adjuvant chemo. If you're getting neoadjuvant chemo to be included, if you had triple negative breast cancer, you didn't have a, a pathologic complete response. Um, now, I will note the standard of care now for triple negative breast cancer, if you don't have a pathologic complete response after chemo, neoadjuvant chemo, you get adjuvant capecitabine uh, afterwards, after uh, your mastectomy um, or, or, or lumpectomy plus radiation. That's based on the CRAE-X study. And then that was really the biggest benefit in that study was in the triple negative breast cancer patient population. If you're hormone positive, you had to be into, that's four plus nodes, if you got adjuvant chemo, or if you were getting neoadjuvant chemo, you didn't have a, a pathologic complete response, and you had a CPS plus EG score of three plus. That's a, that's a zero to six scale that looks at clinical staging, pathologic staging, nuclear grade, as well as hormone status, um, if you did the neoadjuvant. So there's some very specific criteria of who is high risk. It's not everybody. It's not just staging necessarily for these folks with germline BRCA mutations um, getting this. Uh, most of these folks were BRCA1 positive. You know, there's BRCA1, BRCA2, and then probably a whole bunch of other ones. 70% um, were BRCA1. It was 50-50 uh, split between who got neoadjuvant and adjuvant chemo. 95% uh, got both anthracycline and taxane. Another 26% additionally received a platinum agent as part of their chemo. 82% of these folks were triple negative breast cancer. The vast majority were 60-40 uh, split between pre- and postmenopausal. Maybe a little surprising you don't see more premenopausal folks there. Uh, and 74% 74% receive mastectomy as the local treatment. They're looking at invasive disease-free survival. So if somebody had a carcinoma in situ recur, that's not invasive, that would not count as an event. This would have to be a recurrence of in, you know invasive ductal carcinoma or inv invasive lobular carcinoma. At a median follow-up of two and a half years, um, the 36-month, or the, yeah, the three-year invasive disease-free survival is 85.9% versus 77.1%. Um, I could go through the 12-month and 24-month here, but this is what I want to kind of illustrate here. The difference in the elaprib arb and placebo is 8.8% at three years. At two years, the difference is 7.7%. After the one year of elaborate, it's 4.9%. So the invasive disease-free survival cap microbes widen even after Laprip has been discontinued. And I think that's the most impressive thing about this, even if they're using an endpoint that isn't, a primary endpoint that isn't overall survival. Now the OS data is immature, but there's a trend favoring a Laprip, 92% um, versus 88.3%, not significant. It's a delta of 3.7%, which would be, I think, meaningful if that were to hold true and if they have the alpha left to confirm that. So this is looking this is looking very promising for a laparib for these germline BRCA mutations following neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemo if you have these high-risk features uh, that you kind of will probably have to dig into the methods because uh, I can't remember them. I'll have to go back to the methods next time we have a patient like this. The other thing that's reassuring about this is we know the longer you're on a PARP inhibitor, the more likely you are to have MDS or AML. This is only one year of a elaborate, so maybe we wouldn't expect to see it, but there was not a safety signal. There wasn't more MDS or AML in the elaborate arm versus the placebo. Now, the folks who relapse here, because they're germline BRAC, are probably going to get a lap rib uh, at relapse or at some point afterwards. 
Um, so we'll have to look at that overall survival trend to see if Olaparp can make up uh, that difference, so to speak, uh, the same way that Electinib was able to make it up in J. Alex, even in, in those folks who are on Crizotinib. All right, the last study I'm going to talk about is Keynote 564. This is adjuvant pembrolizumab for a year in, in intermediate to high-risk renal cell uh, carcinoma, renal cell carcinoma patients. About a thousand patients who were either intermediate to high or high risk for recurrence. Intermediate high uh, for recurrence was called a, a P2, uh, PT2 lesion, and you had to be grade four or have sarcomatoid features uh, on the biopsy, or PT3. The high risk were you were node positive, PT4 lesion, pathologic T4 lesion, or you had M1 NED. You had metastatic disease, but no evidence of disease, which meant these folks had a nephrectomy and they had a soft tissue resection. So they had a nephrectomy and they had, say, oligometastatic disease, just one metastatic lesion in the lung that was cut out less than a year from nephrectomy. This is not, it's, I don't know this adjuvant treatment if you've got some people with metastatic disease. Now, it was only like 60 patients with metastatic disease. Most of them uh, did not have metastatic disease, okay? Now it's adjuvant and they're not looking at overall survival curses. The 24-month disease-free survival rate was 77.3 versus 68.1%. It's a delta of about 9.2%. Uh, Hazard ratio there is 0.68. Uh, that is statistically significant. Uh, comes at 0.53 to 0.87. Uh, interestingly, in the subgroup analysis, they did look at those who were not metastatic versus those 58 patients who were metastatic. Here's the, here's the hazard ratios. For non-metastatic, 0.74, and uh, compensate it's 0.57 to 0.96, looks good. For the M1 patients, those folks who had metastatic disease, the hazard ratio is 0.29. <laughs> um, there's a, that's, a, that's a big discrepancy. I mean, when you look at the forest plot, there's a huge shift to the left of folks who had mets because they're not getting adjuvant treatment. They're getting, you know, they're getting treatment for metastatic disease, and, you know, maybe... That would be even better if they got uh, a, a TKI plus uh, pembrolizumab. What happens when those M1 folks progress? Do you give them a VEGF inhibitor and uh, and Nevo or Pembro? You know what do you do? Um, the overall survival um, trend at 24 months looks promising: 96.6 versus 93.5, but too early for that. So it's going to be a question: What happens at relapse? Um, there have been lots and lots of um, TKI studies in the same types of patients, high risk. I don't include M1 patients that have shown disease-free survival benefit. One has, but they don't ever show overall survival benefit. So it'll be interesting to see if this overall survival benefit holds up. Uh, we're only at 24 months. Um, you know, the, the, the staging here for favorable, intermediate, or poor risk is really for metastatic patients. So we, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, I, I'll say that the, the disease-free survival cat curve seemed to stay parallel, uh, suggesting maybe some long benefit of a tizolizumab, but we, you know, we'll see. I, I don't know. That the, the jury is still out on, on whether or not this is going to cure folks, which really should be the answer if we're going to call this adjuvant. Otherwise, it's just preemptive treatment of metastatic disease, and in some cases, actual treatment of actual metastatic disease. All right, that's ASCO 2021. Thanks for listening. Um, should have a pod next week, but got a long-deserved break for a landmark birthday celebration uh, with my wife off to wine country studying the effects of uh, resveratrol uh, on cancer and cardiovascular health protection. So I uh, should have something next week, but if not, it's because of a, of a, little, a little break in the schedule. 
thank you all for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeaton. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. <laughs>